0: Horrific as the past few months have been, my story isn't about the year 2020. It's about the building 2020, a red brick art deco structure just outside of Chicago. Though now it functions as a satellite office for a major Midwestern university, when I worked there 30 some odd years ago, it produced medical equipment. Before that, it housed a tinker toy factory, a line of construction toys that predate Legos. Like a million other converted spaces, 2020 isn't exactly an architectural gym. just a sturdy building that's been through multiple incarnations. It's only unique in that it's probably haunted. Not overtly haunted, but subtly, as in hearing someone walking around the hallways when there's only two of you working overtime and you're both at your desks. As in having doors close and lights turn off with no apparent cause. During the day, there's no hint of some invisible presence making the rounds. But after hours, after hours, you get the feeling you're being watched, perhaps watched over by someone or something that needs to be sure everything's under control. I prefer to call it the night watchman. During my days at 2020, I got to know a few employees who'd grown up in the neighborhood. It was through them that I learned of the factory fire a massive conflagration in which a night watchman lost his life. He'd discovered the fire while on his rounds. He tried to extinguish it himself before at last calling the fire department. Tragically, his actions cost him his life. Truth be told, I've never been able to verify this story. But I can tell you I worked many a graveyard shift at that place, during which I heard footsteps and doors closing when the only other living person on duty was sitting in my line of sight. A professional cleaning crew only ever cleaned the place Saturday mornings. The lone security guard sat at her desk in the lobby all night. When the division I worked for closed down in 1984, I left for a job at the downtown campus of the aforementioned university where I met the person I'd eventually marry. A few years later, the university established a satellite office in the 2020 building. My partner continues to make frequent trips there on business. A couple of years ago, I ran into a member of this extended co-worker family while out shopping. While we were catching up, I mentioned I once worked in the building. 2020 is quite an interesting place, isn't it? she asked. Sensing she was hinting at something, I replied, It sure is. Have you ever gotten a sense that there is something there that you can't see? Oh, hell yeah, she said with a laugh. There's definitely something there. I'm always aware of it when I'm working late. Of course, I told her the story about the night watchman. Funny you should mention that, she said. Because whatever is there, I've always felt it was protecting those of us on the graveyard shift.
1: Hi, I'm Jamie Murkey. And I'm Michael Tatum, And this... (laughs) intentions.
2: Uh, <laughs> we are up and running.
1: I had some technical difficulties exciting. on my end, which I'm like,
2: Brandon, help me fix. Or by which yeah, I it's mean not fix just it. me. Wendy's not the only one fucking shit up here. You've got little boy blue over there helping I'm, you. Yeah,
1: I'm sure we've got some imps in our bits. In our yeah. They how can me, you not? I wonder me. how many
2: people are more aware of... Of sounds in their house that they were not aware of. Now that people are home more often,
1: <laughs> right? We were like, "Does my house always do that?" Fuck. Yeah. No wonder I was never home. Yeah. yeah. I, it's it's funny. I, I it's I, I don't I, we don't have a lot of weird things happen here anymore. Like our old apartment, because we moved we moved units in the same building last year, and um, in our old unit we had some weird things go on. Nothing too dramatic, but a few things, you know, odd noises, stuff moving. Um lights going on and off, things like that. Nothing nothing that's like, oh, crazy, weird, we should move. It was just like, well, that's okay, that's odd. But since we moved units, uh, you know, we uh nothing really, nothing. The place is kinda yeah. place is kinda kinda dead. It's kinda depressing. I, I miss our ghosts. I want I want I want the company again, especially now that I'm stuck here all the time.
2: <laughs> well, maybe Wendy can come visit you.
1: Well, I mean she's she's welcome. I welcome ghosts if they behave. I mean, you know, you gotta right. s- you gotta sing I mean, for your supper do around here. But bad.
2: <laughs> but it's like, who's upstairs? I mean, it's pretty constant. Who's upstairs? No one. Okay, and that happened during our last recording. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm.
2: I kept here. I thought the girls had come upstairs and were going up and down the hallway, and I was like, why are they stomping? Um, and then I texted Jack to see if they were upstairs, and he was like, no. And then I. It was like, well, maybe it's Dexter. Dexter is only 35 pounds, but he is a hard charger.
1: Yeah, he's, he's and sure very, enough, yeah, he runs like yeah, a gazelle.
2: Yeah, he he was uh, he had been up here, and so Jack got him down and put the gate up. And, I mean, within 10 minutes, I heard it again, and I was like, who is up here? And they were all downstairs. And the whole time that we were recording, I continued to hear someone walking up and down the hallway, just running up and down the hallway. So I have no idea what it is. And then yesterday I was painting a bookshelf for the girls and I was right under their room and they were taking a nap and it sounded like someone ran in a circle
3: up there. (laughs) And Dexter
2: heard it too. And he ran up the stairs and um, looked around and then came back downstairs. Clearly nothing was there to interest him. Um, And I asked Serafina about it later Uh, what she was doing. And she had just been in bed the whole time, like playing on her Kindle or whatever, uh, while Callista, the younger one, was asleep above her up until a certain point where I heard uh, them moving around and I knew it was them. So I didn't say, I heard someone run around. Was that you? Because I don't want to freak them out. (laughs) But (laughs) I was like, that's not them. It didn't even sound like them too much, uh, the way that they move around. But I was like, oh, that's, all right. That's, it was enough to get it. Yeah, it was one, nice then. though there to have Dexter here it, too. That's our and like go check it out. That's our
1: weeping angel. Uh yeah. God. Yeah, here, um the I have noticed, uh, since being in this particular apartment, uh if I take a nap in the afternoon, which I do a lot in quarantine, uh I have yeah. the I have Naps the absolutely. weirdest. Most vivid fucking dreams, and I don't normally remember my dreams. I mean, I I, I must. I mean, you're supposed to dream every night, but you, you often don't remember them. I almost never remember my dreams, but if I sleep in during the day for like an hour, if I just you know sleep long enough to get into that that first REM cycle or whatever, I have the weirdest fucking dreams. And I just had one this morning. I ate breakfast and was like, okay, back to bed.
3: <laughs> that was <laughs> great. I, was,
1: I could not. Last night was really. I could not fall asleep. My mind was just racing. And Brandon was the same thing. We're like, oh, there's got so much going on in our heads, and we can't. So we kept getting up and like having a snack, and then going to bed, and be like, nope, nope, still bored. Getting <laughs> we got red. We probably went to bed at like four o'clock in the morning. And Brandon, of course, has to get up at nine, so we didn't get much sleep. So I went back to bed, and uh, I had this dream that we were living in uh, some old shitty apartment, you know, that we used to live in. Actually, it's a kind of a. It was kind of a. a, a a version of an apartment we first lived in together uh when or the apartment we lived in when we were first together i should say and uh genji was with us in the dream and uh he got out and like just ran away but it was like the way he runs he was like no, no i'm just gonna like trot uh, fast enough for you not to be able yeah. to catch me and he ran and i was like looking for him I'm like yeah all yeah, the whole time which of course is a huge stress <laughs> dream and i wound up finding him with a, a, a breeder of Frenchies who was like, oh, yeah, this this must be your dog. Uh, but the guy kept trying to give me the wrong dog. I'm like, this isn't Genji. This is another dog. This is that's my dog right there. He's like, are you sure? And I, got, I was like, I feel like the guy was trying to con me out of a better dog because he's like, no, no, this yeah. is a good one. And I'm like and I finally when I explained to him that Genji was neutered, he was like, oh, no, yeah, you're, that, you're right. That is your dog. <laughs> and I woke up and yeah. I'm like the fuck is that that's such a weird dream but I have stress dream. I have so much anxieties over uh, our dogs because I'm a helicopter you parent you do and Genji's yeah I am
2: the, I'm similar so we had another weird thing happen too where um, the other night and I normally I'm really good at remembering my dreams yeah. and I woke up and I just remember feeling afraid like I felt not safe I guess or not mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. It was like a dread kind of feeling. Yeah. Something. And then and then it very quickly transitioned uh, from that into I am not alone. It's not just Jack and me in this room. Oof. So I thought maybe one of the girls had come in to yeah. terrify me as they are wont to do. <laughs> um, but I have um, a little a trap for them. I put bells on the door so if they come in those <laughs> bells are going to wake me up. And then they won't I, stare you, at me until when, I wake when up. When you said again traps, I pictured
1: just like a field of mouse traps in the hallway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no toes for those little girls. No. Uh, so, but at least then I'll hear the bells if they open the door. Well, right,
1: right. That's a much more pleasant way of being w- woke up yeah. than bells up, instead wake of up.
2: children staring at you until you wake up and they're just right there <laughs> in your face. So
1: uh,
2: it was this like, it was this really, and I, they were, I didn't hear the bells. I, you know, got up. they There was nobody in there with us. And I just couldn't shake this feeling like someone was there with us. Mm. And um, it was creepy. And I, you know, it took me probably an hour to fall back asleep. So then Jack and I were talking about, Uh, He was talking about how he woke up at five and couldn't go to sleep for probably an hour. And I was like, oh, that's really funny. I woke up at one. He was like, yeah, I can't explain it. I just, I, and this doesn't ever happen to me, but I just had this really big sense of dread.
3: Mm. And,
2: and, and I was like, when you woke up and he was like, yeah. And I had not told him that I was having that. I just told him I had woken up at one. And he talked about how there was just like this weird anxiety, sense of dread thing that, that woke him up. And I was like, "It's not just me."
1: Oh, <laughs> you're the victim so of psychic attack. That was interesting. Nothing someone, happened. Someone said to Puka,
2: "Yeah, or whatever." Nothing I don't happened know. or anything, but it did feel like it was creepy. It was definitely creepy. I,
1: I have that happen occasionally. I'll, uh, I'll just get a sense that some something's here. It's nothing really. I'm always able to kind of write it off. I've been like, oh, that's probably just my imagination," you know, actor. But. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it happens enough that I'm like, ah, yeah, I've learned to just, pre- I've learned to just pretend to go along with it. Like if it's, I'm like, well, I don't know if if, <sighs> if it's really something. I'm just gonna be nice to it. I don't want to be rude, <laughs> so right. I'll I'll acknowledge <laughs> okay. it, like that episode of Benson and the and the water cooler. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. but yeah, it's it's. I kind of. I'll be honest. I li- lived in a haunted house for ten years, and you know stuff happened. Not on the regular, but like there'd be a a, a kind of a barrage of activity every four years or so, uh, and mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. several months there'd be a lot of just really weird shit. Like pretty obvious, like okay, all right, this is the kind of shit that I'll be talking about on Celebrity Ghost Story one day. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and. But now, not so much. Now, you know, now that I've, I've moved in, I've lived in three different apartments since living in that house. And uh, not, not really, you know, the, the scariest thing is usually just my neighbors.
2: Right. Man, so, but Celebrity Ghost Hunters is weird now because, or Celebrity Ghost Stories, which is one of my favorites because they know how to tell a yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. It's really um, engaging. But so many of the people on those episodes have passed away. And so I it's kind know, of like a creepy. different, yeah, like dynamic. Like
1: I saw one the other day where they, they rerun, um, or not rerun. I guess I just come across, it, I came across it on YouTube or something of Rue McClanahan telling her ghost story, and mm-hmm. I'm like, oh Rue. And a few others, and now Fred Willard, he told yeah. one, and he's he's dead recently. I'm like, oh. God. And Regis
2: Philbin, he had a really yeah. good one. Yeah, he just passed and, away and yesterday. He just didn't passed he? away too I was just like. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's almost like let's celebrate these people's lives by watching celebrity ghost stories.
1: <laughs> Hearing their ghost <laughs> stories. But um, Hey, that's the great thing about a ghost story. You tell it and one day you could be one.
2: That's true. That's very true.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, uh, um <laughs> thank you to Mike McFarland. Yes, Mike. For reading we love our you. opening story.
1: Yeah, that was from a, a Reddit uh submitter. I uh I don't know their name. <laughs> 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 it was like a string of numbers and shit, I don't know. It's, a Reddit it's,
2: submitter or Reddit, we just got it. Yeah,
1: yeah, but it was a good yeah. story, so I decided to, to uh, give it to Mike to read, and he was very happy to, to be part of it, which is great. He's got a really nice home set up. I love Mike dearly. Yay, he's, yes. he's one of my besties, so he was we adore very excited. Him.
2: He is in all, a lot of he's, animes. He's, he's directed a ton. Oh yeah,
1: a ton. He's one of the best directors in the business uh if he's you if you know like since... attack on titan he directed attack on titan and he plays uh mm-hmm. Jean Kirstein and uh among others and uh, all He's
2: also uh Mr. <laughs> oh no, he's uh oh, what's his name in Dragon Ball?
1: Uh Oh, who is he in Dragon Ball? Oh goddamn. Uh, oh, he's, he's, starts... he's, he wrote... uh, he's he's turtle uh, he's uh, he's he's turtle hermit. He's he's um uh, uh he's, the old Master... Guy. he's Master Roshi. Master Roshi, that's right. I was like, Mr. Yeah.
2: is wrong, and it's... Whoa. And I was like, Rorschach isn't right. Mr.
1: Rotini? No, it's Matt, no.
2: Mm, but it so- that no. sounds fun. Um, yeah, he's Master Roshi on Dragon mm. Ball 2. He's, he's you great. know, Mike, he's
1: a Mike so uh, when we get back to doing this show, like, you know, face-to-face again, we'll have to have him on as a guest. He's got some good ghost stories of his own, actually. Ooh,
3: <laughs> but, yes. Hey, I would love so to. he
1: has this really cool house, right? And um, it's kind of out in this little... Uh, you know, area kind of wooded area. It's not, it's not exactly the country, but it's a little suburb off the highway, it's a, and it's really it's cool. It's a
2: neighborhood with space.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like a little isolated neighborhood. And uh, it's really cool. And this house, you know, it's got like a, this really cool deck that's on the second floor that looks out back on the, this kind of bank of trees. And, <laughs> when I, I was out there with him and uh, and we're just sitting there kind of, you know, just enjoying the night air, looking up at the stars, you know, talking. And we he, he's got these floodlights on the uh, the balcony that are kind of uh, casting our shadows on the trees so that we look like giant shadows on the trees a good like 50 yards ahead of us and he's like he stops us in the middle of a conversation he's like hang on uh, count those shadows <laughs> <And> there, was, <laughs> there was like one extra shadow and we're like what the oh, fuck no. it was just a trick of the way the light beams were crossing yeah, but it like that's for a second like we just had this uh,
0: moment <laughs>
1: <laughs> what's our? Um... Wait, wait, oh, thank, our... thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. We love you. Uh, what's our title for today, Jamie? Our
2: title today comes courtesy of uh, our uh, Phantasm Patreon, which our Phantasm chat is tonight, but of course yes. that will be over by the time this is airing. Um, but it is uh, Mr. Kestrel, as uh, per usual, <laughs> he's uh, sent this in. Uh, the title is Words Are Pale Shadows.
3: Oh, and just.
2: that comes from um, <laughs> The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss.
1: God, I love Roth, that book.
2: Rothfuss.
1: R- 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 we just say Rothfuss. We call Rothfuss. him Patty.
2: Rothfuss.
1: Rothfussy I love, butt.
2: That's what I would call him. I fucking
1: love The um, Name of the Wind and The Wise, Man Fear, Wise Man's yeah. Fear, the, the two in the trilogy so far. It's a proposed trilogy, yeah. I believe, but we're waiting on him to finish the next one because
2: he averages mm-hmm. about a
1: decade between books.
2: Gotcha. Well, this is the full quote. Uh, Words are pale shadows of forgotten names. As names have power, words have power. Words can light fires in the minds of men. Words can wring tears from the hardest hearts. It's true. And (laughs) it has, you know, here's what's
1: fun. It's what Twitter's all about. (laughs) That's
2: right. That's right. Uh, What's kind of cool about this particular title and it being suggested is i went looking for a title and it just struck me mm-hmm. as this is a, this is the right title and then i asked you what you were doing and you told me and i told you what the title was and you were like that is perfect i'm like
1: you don't even know how perfect it is
2: yeah and then i got into my story and the more i got into it the more perfect the yeah. Title came for that too, so it's kind of cool. Um, but you're starting.
1: I'm starting, and uh, Mr. Kestrel, uh, you'll love this, and it's even more appropriate because my my story is about a Scotsman, a Scottish yes. gentleman. Uh, I wonder if anyone's heard of him. I I've read his works, but he's not terribly well known outside of academia. Anyway, um, I'm going to tell of the last days of James Webb. Now, trigger warning, the story gets kind of dark. It deals with depression and suicide, sadly. Yeah. So just be aware of that. And it
2: is The Last Days. So it's kind of in the yeah. title.
1: yeah. They were not happy right. last days, put it that way. Um, and it deals a lot with, uh, with uh, mental illness. So just be aware of that. And it's a fairly recent story. I mean, this happened um, in the 70s and 80s, so it's not by any means ancient history. So before I get started, let me name my sources. I had quite a few on this one. Uh, First of all, there are two books by James Webb himself called The Occult Underground and The Occult Establishment. Uh, A book called Revolutionaries of the Soul by Gary Lockman, who's written a lot on esoteric subjects. He used to be in a band, uh, this guy, but he's written a lot. He's written a really great uh, biography of Aleister Crowley and uh, just about everyone. He's just written a lot of really great books. And this uh, uh, Revolutionaries of the Soul is kind of a, just sort of a little survey of some of the more uh, influential uh, spiritual thinkers of the past, you know, ever. And, <laughs> but it's really good. He's got a very engaging style and he knows his shit. And I, I uh, crib heavily from his, his bit on uh, James Webb in what I'm about to read you. Also uh, a book by Joyce Colin Smith called Call No Man Master, an article in forty and, 40 and Times, uh, the magazine out of the UK that I believe this article was published in 1997, and of course, Wikipedia. Now, without further adieu. Adieu. (laughs) Without further goodbye, what? Um, On May 8, 1980, following two years of profound depression and at least one fully-fledged psychotic break that we know of, renowned occult historian James Charles Napier Webb put the barrel of a shotgun to his mouth and pulled the trigger. He had turned 34 just that January. Though confined largely to an academic readership, Webb's work on the occult revival, particularly its repercussions on the secular world, was unparalleled. A brilliant student from his earliest days, the gangly, red-haired Scotsman staked his reputation on two books published just in his 20s, The Occult Underground and The Occult Establishment. Dense, elegantly written tomes that would revolutionize, among other things, our understanding of the esoteric currents churning away beneath early 20th century art. So paints taking the researched and well argued or views on the topic that Cambridge, his alma mater, awards to this day a biennial prize in his name to worthy scholars. That's not everyone gets a, a Cambridge prize named after them.
3: Are you
2: do you is biannual is that twice a year or every two years?
1: Uh, biennial, I believe it means once every five years. Oh, I think. Uh, because it's it's B I E N N. I A L. I really ought to have looked oh. it up before I said. Oh, okay. I thought you I, said biannual. Yeah, it, and so, I was it like, sounds like biannual, but it's where do you bi. Sit it's in that? Uh, biannual. Like wow, where do I get on this award? It sounds like my odds are pretty good. <laughs> Uh, Webb was a frequent and welcome contribut- uh, contributor to Encounter, a literary magazine founded in 1953 by poet Steven Spender and journalist Irving Kristol. He wrote articles for the encyclopedia Man, Myth, and Magic. Just months before his untimely death, Webb published a book titled The Harmonious Circle, the much-anticipated study of guru G.I. Gurdjieff and his esteemed disciple P.D. Ospensky. But more on those two gentlemen in a little bit. If you've never heard them, well, you're going to hear a lot about them in this Essay. Uh, from now, <laughs> from all this, you'd be excused for assuming Webb's views on the occult were sympathetic. The original title for his first book, however gives us a clue to the contrary. He proposed to call it the flight from reason. So far from being a Mm -hmm. practitioner of the arcane Webb was a dyed in the wool rationalist. The lens through which he scrutinized figures like Madame Blavatsky, Aleister Crowley, and Dion Fortune to name just a few is basically one of smarmy tongue in cheek skepticism. In so many words, he dismisses the spiritual dimensions of belief in favor of the effect those beliefs have on society as a whole. And yet, staunch decryer crier of unreason as he was, Webb would pull a complete turnaround shortly before taking his own life. Quote, Webb's books combine a painstaking research into the occult and an ironic dismissal of it, writes Gary Lockman in his book Revolutionaries of the Soul. But at the time of his suicide, Webb had changed his mind about the kind of experiences he had once chalked down to delusion, fantasy, and a post-Enlightenment craving for the irrational. In his last days, Webb was convinced that the nervous breakdown that cast him into suicidal madness had also revealed dimensions of reality that could only be called supernatural. He found himself catapulted into a larger universe, filled with altered states of consciousness and profound visions of cyclical time. So... How does a man go from glib Cambridge ultra-skeptic to reluctant, dare I say, even petrified believer? Well, in the case of James Webb, it started with Joyce Colin Smith. But before we dive into his astonishing transformation, I hasten to point out that Webb's experience with madness in his final days was not, alas, all third eye insight and revelation. Sad to say, the galloping paranoia that accompanied Webb's breakdown strongly suggests schizophrenia. In letters to friends, Webb wrote that his publishers were persecuting him and that a sect of evil Freemasons wanted him dead. Mm. Yet, tempting though it may be to unpack Webb's 180 on the paranormal as just another symptom of a broken mind, the circumstances surrounding his madness are just a little too coincidental to dismiss out of hand. Now Joyce Collins Smith, who was old enough to be James's mother when they met, was giving a lecture to the Astrological Association in May of 1972. The subject under consideration was the life and work of her late brother-in-law, Rodney Collin, notable for being one of P.D. Ouspensky's most devoted and articulate followers. Hoping to snag an interview with Joyce for his book, The Harmonious Circle, James attended her lecture with the intention of introducing himself. Now, I realize I'm throwing a lot of names at you, so let's pause for a moment and take a look at just who these people were. P.D. Ouspensky, as I mentioned in the beginning, was a disciple of mystic G.I. Gurdjieff and uh, brought the teachings of his master to a wide a wider public in the early part of the 20th century. The Arminian- Okay, so
2: he was a mystical dude.
1: Yes. The armenian born okay. Gurdjieff founded the so-called Fourth Way, a technique for cultivating higher consciousness that draws from several sacred tra- traditions, most prominently yoga, Sufism, and elements of Catholic monastic life. He taught-
2: I hate yoga. I just
1: need that to be known. <laughs> hate I, it, it stresses I, me I, out. I, I do too. I'm just like, the <laughs> only thing I learned from yoga is how not flexible I am. Um, right. Now, Gurdjieff taught that most human beings don't possess a unified consciousness and, as a result, trudge on in a state of hypnotic waking sleep, as it were. Thankfully, through strict discipline, it's possible to achieve a higher state and fulfill one's true potential. The method described for doing so is called the work. P. D. Alspinsky was an early convert to Gurdjieff's teachings and would later add his own spin to them when the two parted ways. Rodney Collin, Joyce's brother in law, was in turn an early advocate of Elspinsky, and would later adopt a similar role to his master, as Elspinsky did with respect to Gurdjieff. This was I to- bet they were
2: super fun.
1: <laughs> they, they they led crazy fucking lives, I will say that. Um this was to be the subject of the lecture Joyce was giving to the Astrological Association in May of 1972. Joyce herself had run the gamut of spiritual teachers in her very storied lifetime. She'd practiced the work with Rodney at a commune in Mexico City. She'd involved her she'd been involved with the founder of Moral Rearmament, Dr. Frank uh, Buchman. She followed Indonesian mystic Pak Sudah. She'd even been the chauffeur of Maharishi Mah- the yogi who taught the Beatles how to meditate. Oh. Right? All of which is to say, Joyce knew what she was fucking talking about. (laughs) She'd been Mm -hmm. lecturing on esoteric topics for years, totally inured to the anxiety most people experience at the thought of public speaking, kind of like you and me, Uh, Mm. which was why it was so odd that she felt a sudden surge of panic at the appearance of James Webb. As the tall, lanky Scotsman picked his way down the last row of the lecture hall, searching for a seat, his unruly ginger mane bobbing like a fireball, Joyce flashed back to a terrible recurring nightmare she'd had as a child. She would later recall in her autobiography, Call No Man Master, published in 1988, that the moment she saw Webb enter the auditorium, her heart leapt. But it wasn't love at first sight. Quite the contrary. She recognized in Webb a sinister figure from her nightmares. In said nightmare, a tall, red-haired young schoolmaster would ask her to fetch something from an ominous tower. Halfway up the tower steps, in an abandoned room, the schoolmaster, now frothing mad, would throw himself at her. Now <clears throat> now, more than forty years later, the red-haired schoolmaster it seems, had come to hear Joyce discuss her brother-in-law. She delivered the lecture almost exclusively to him, paying the other attendees very little mind. She was determined to let this apparition, if it was indeed an apparition, know exactly who was boss now afterwards, <laughs> when Webb I like her. She, right now afterwards, yeah. when Webb sheepishly introduced himself to her, she was. Uh, obviously more surprised at his gentle, self-effacing manner than the fact that he was actually flesh and blood. Uh,
2: but <laughs> She is very powerful. She brought him to life.
1: <laughs> but the two got on uh, like a house on fire. Immediately, they became close friends. They would repair to Joyce's house in Sussex and discuss philosophy, religion, history, and her experiences with the occult into the wee hours. Now, at first, Webb would take her accounts with a hefty grain of salt. Cambridge skeptic that he was. Uh, She regaled him with tales of precognitive dreams, visions, altered states of consciousness brought on by transcendental meditation, even chat chat sessions with the dead. Webb may have been a brilliant scholar, but before meeting Joyce, his experience with the cult had always been at a comfortable remove. He was kind of an armchair historian. So this was a lot to take in. All the same. He was hooked. Though Webb was married, and his wife—excuse uh, me—though Webb was married, his wife Mary didn't mind the burgeoning friendship with Joyce. For one thing, Joyce was twice Webb's age. For another, Mary, who had no time for such nonsense, was glad that Webb finally found someone to talk about—to talk to—about his rather absurd line of study. She let them be. <laughs> quite happy, someone else was babysitting her precocious and rather volatile husband. Inevitably, Gary Lockman writes, Joyce compared their astrological charts, both were Capricorns with Leo rising. The points of contact among their stars suggested to Joyce that James could indeed have been her son had she had one, and the association with the mad schoolmaster from her nightmares faded. Their rapport deepened, her affection for the young scholar grew more and more. Joyce was reminded of Rodney Collin, of whom she'd had a similar rapport and who had died tragically in mysterious circumstances years earlier. Now, strange deaths were not all that uncommon among proponents of the work. Upon Gurdjieff's death in 1949, the coroner at his autopsy declared that Gurdjieff's internal organs to be those of a man who'd been dead for years. From the look of things, Hmm. the tenacious guru had simply willed himself to carry on well past his appointed time. Ospensky's death was even stranger, writes Lochman. He was obsessed with time. His particular fascination was eternal recurrence, the notion that, with slight variations, our lives repeat over and over. The, the only possibility of escape is in becoming more conscious. In his last days, a sick and dying Ospensky visited various favorite sites, fixing them in his mind in order to remember them in his next recurrence weird psychic phenomenon occurred. In his efforts to die consciously, witnesses report that Ospensky had become telepathic. When on October 2nd, 1947, Ospensky passed away, Rodney Carlin, his, closely, his closest disciple, locked himself in, in the room next to his masters and did not emerge for a week. He told his wife and Joyce, his sister-in-law, that he had been in communication with Ospensky the entire time. Nearly ten years later, on May 3rd, 1956, Colin would die after falling from a tower in Cusco, Peru. He was found in a position resembling the crucified Christ. Earlier, he had prayed that a crippled peasant boy be cured and told his wife that he offered his body to God in exchange. But, Mm -hmm. back to James Webb. At one point, while having tea on a splendid summer afternoon at Joyce's Sussex estate, Webb asked Joyce for another slice of cherry cake. Something about his tone and the image of cherries recalled her to another dream she'd often had as a child. In it, Joyce sat under a Tibetan sky with a fantasy brother, eating cherries. More and more, Joyce felt certain that she and Jamie, as she liked to call him, were two beings who had incarnated within reach of each other many times in different roles. Sadly, just as their friendship was getting underway, Joyce's husband fell ill, forcing the couple to move. She added to her lecture tour and started drawing up personal horoscopes to make ends meet, which gave her a little time for Jamie, though they kept up a constant correspondence. He phoned her at some point, wanting to check a reference for his book on Gurdjieff. Though he and Mary had uh, just gotten back from a wonderful trip to the Orient and his career prospects seemed shining as ever, something in his tone over the phone gave Joyce pause. After hanging up, she immediately consulted his astrological chart. The familiar qualities were there, fire, tenacity, volatility, but also something she hadn't really considered before, a strong tendency to depression and an inclination to draw inward and shut people out as he got older. Little did Joyce realize Webb had been doing just that. Friends saw less and less of him these days. He and Mary were on the rocks, so fixated on work had he become that he'd fall asleep at his desk, surrounded by volumes of occult philosophy, having burned the candle at both ends all night without so much as having spoken to a single human being in days. What had been an area of special study had grown into an outright mania. The next time Joyce would hear from him, Webb had experienced... I mean,
2: it doesn't sound that bad.
1: (laughs) Well... (laughs) Just hold on. He's just reading a lot. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The next time Joyce would hear from him, Webb had experienced a psychotic break in the interim. Quote, "'My life has just emerged from a nightmare,' Webb wrote sometime later. I had a full-on nervous breakdown with hallucinations, visions, and a fine repertoire of of subjectively supernatural experiences. Hoist by my own petard, some would say. Despite the undoubtedly hallucinatory nature of my many experiences, he wrote, "'A residue remains which I simply have to take seriously.'" He tried to fit what he was going through into some kind of metaphysical system, calling on Gnostic notions of aeons and Hindu kalpas. He wrote of shattering visions of the wheel of time. He met his previous incarnations, in fact. He grew absolutely convinced that consciousness wasn't just a byproduct of chemical processes, but a kind of linga sharira, or long body, as Ospinsky might call it, extending across countless lives. Comforting though this may be on the face of things to Webb, it was absolutely horrific. There was no stability. Reality simply refused to sit still. He would look at something, any random object, and find it impossible not to see its entire history in one fell swoop, playing over and over and over. We are all imprisoned in the coils of cyclical time," he wrote. Joyce recognized what Jamie was going through. She'd gone through it herself after diving too deeply into Transcendental Meditation in the 50s. The experience had, in fact, brought her to the brink of suicide. She instructed Webb to keep his mind focused on the present and laid out a number of useful exercises to the purpose. These seemed to help for a little while, but more and more, Webb's thoughts began to dwell on death. Joyce wondered whether her friend was going through some sort of self-initiation. Had their many conversations on the occult slowly chipped away at the veneer of rationality he'd so desperately clung to for so long, leaving him open to insights and experiences his Cambridge education simply hadn't prepared him for? In his letters to Joyce, Webb spoke of precognitive dreams and of a sort of Gnostic personal myth he'd developed on his own. Quote, he had long fantasized that he was a member of a crew whose spaceship had crashed on an alien planet, says Lochman. Enslaved by the natives, they soon forgot their past, but occasionally dim memories stirred. The crew members recognized each other, and they recalled their mission. The tragedy, James told her, is infinitely far distant, the adventure infinitely long, and we are ageless. Ageless. I share Gary Lockman's opinion that had James Webb been encouraged to explore these themes within himself, he probably would have survived. Sadly, his wife, Mary, would have none of it. Decidedly unsympathetic to his babbling, she demanded he get a job. Now, he hardly needed one because he came from wealthy stock. Mary simply wanted him the fuck out of the house. and to Yeah, be...
2: well, and it's this whole, there's, there is that... Uh... Mm-hmm concept of if you're busy mm-hmm. then you don't have time to think about all this other stuff right, and get down right, so right. And, uh, exactly stay yeah. busy yeah yeah
1: and uh, to be fair she certainly loved him she just didn't yeah. quite know how to deal with him and and it was kind of she was out of her depth dealing with what he was yeah. going through and she felt that a steady occupation that would induce him to pick himself up by the bootstraps but alas working for a cop working as a copywriter with an advertising firm in Edinburgh only fed webb's paranoia the workplace atmosphere was toxic he just couldn't get along with his fellow coworkers and withdrew into total isolation he was well, researching the whole like mm. pulling
2: yourself up by the bootstraps when you're depressed bootstraps are very heavy
1: Yeah, when you're depressed it's, <laughs> it's like so fine where are my fucking boots
3: uh
2: I, I read it. there's a comic up. And I,
1: I cannot <laughs> think of the comic I'm sure our listeners we're, listeners will know what I'm talking about but there's a comic where someone describes uh depression and how well-meaning friends often try to help and uh this person is like it's like look at the metaphor it's like you're saying yeah my um my fish are dead and someone goes nah your fish aren't dead they're probably just hiding let's go looking for them and you're like they're not they're not hiding they're Dead. Well, let's look behind the couch. They're dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that's depression for you. Like you, you know, yeah. people just don't know how to handle it. So you need help. You need professional help. Yeah, um,
3: absolutely. Uh, uh, um,
1: Webb, and now at the time of his job as a copywriter in Edinburgh, he was researching a book on on various esoteric movements in Scotland, but just couldn't keep his mind on it. He, as brilliant as he'd always been, he kept losing the plot. That, and he was absolutely certain someone was after him because he knew too much more from lockman joyce decided she had to see him but this time their telepathic by this time their telepathic link had increased she had visions of him at his desk and would feel a pain in the back of his neck a vulnerable spot he shared with rodney collin her brother-in-law she could hear him crying at night and in her in her mind she would reach out and comfort him although she'd never been to his home she had images of the grounds around the Webb estate later after his death she saw that these had been accurate Meanwhile, Jamie's madness deepened. One night, he crouched before the fireplace, mumbling the Lord's Prayer over and over. What's it all about, he kept asking, no one in particular. Another night, he fled, into the, he fled outside, fully naked, screaming hysterically. Uh, I mean, that sounds like something I do on the regular. It's not necessarily a sign of depression. Uh, <laughs> but you're
2: screaming at people to put their dogs on a leash.
1: While naked, yes. Uh, <laughs> It makes more of an impact, honestly. Right. Joyce had already decided she and her husband would fly to Scotland, but by then it was too late. The day before their trip, she heard Jamie calling her name in her mind. I'm coming, she answered. Suddenly, a deafening explosion went off in her mind. She would learn later that James and Mary had had an ugly argument that afternoon, and afterward Mary had stormed out. James had loaded the shotgun and put the barrel to his mouth. Of course, Joyce felt responsible for not coming to Jamie in time. She let her friend endure the long, dark night of the soul alone, she felt. The guilt might account for what followed, but not necessarily. She she sensed his presence all the time. He came to her in dreams, asking Joyce to carry on his work. Visit my mother, he told her. Consulting two mediums, Joyce grew convinced that some fragments of James had survived. Information emerged, location, dates, uh, books, etc., that she couldn't have known, but that James' mother would later confirm. At first, writes Lockman, Joyce was thankful for these messages, but then she felt that something was not right about the whole thing. This was not the entire Jamie, just bits and pieces of him. Jamie or some part of him didn't know he was dead and wouldn't move on. Joyce began to feel like he was trying to take her over. Mm. Eventually, a clergyman friend of the spiritualist Persuasion offered to say a requiem to help Webb relinquish his attachment to the world. Satisfied that the Rite would not interfere with them finding each other in the next incarnation, Joyce agreed. As she and the clergyman read the prayers in the candlelit chapel, she felt something lift up from her consciousness and take flight. Jamie had moved on. There was one final weird coincidence in his death. Now... Uh, she didn't know this at the time, but uh, one of the other books he was working on when he killed himself was a book on Rudolf Steiner, a famous German mystic, who was uh, operating in the turn of the 20th century. Uh, Hitler hated him, so you know he was a good guy. And, <laughs> uh, and he just his, his Steiner's contribution to esoteric thought uh, really can't be understated, uh, can't be overstated rather. Uh, and so uh, no one had really undertaken a book on him in English yet. So, uh, Webbs was to be the first, but uh, he hadn't told anyone he was working on this. He'd gone really paranoid. He didn't want to share anything with anybody. So as far as anyone knew, this was not a thing until it only came to light uh, several months, if not years after his death. At some point, Joyce was sitting alone and she was kind of brooding over like, you know, God, why didn't I, why didn't I help? She, she, she screamed out to herself in a moment of weakness, like, why didn't you help him? And she heard a voice in her head go I did and (laughs) she was like what and she's like oh my god she looked up recordings later and the voice sounded like Rudolf Steiner and it just so happened that she looked through his papers later when she was finally given access by Mary to go through them to continue his work he was working on something by Rudolf Steiner and um our old friend Colin Wilson who I've talked about a lot yeah was uh Joyce and several other people gave him the information on Rudolf Steiner. And he wrote a book on Rudolf Steiner, dedicating it to James Webb and James Webb's memory. And Colin Wilson, not knowing of this little coincidence, uh, had a dream himself where Rudolf Steiner had come to James when he was dying and led him, or at least part of him on to the next life. Oh yeah, well, that's nice. So that is the sad At and least. weird, but in some ways very beautiful story of James Webb, uh, the the skeptic turned believer, um, who, alas, mm. just wasn't surrounded. And I can't stress enough, if any of you are going through anything remotely like this, it is so tempting. Of course, when you're having, you know, when you're in a depressive state or a manic state or any kind of state where you're you're not in mental equilibrium, I think it's easier to experience the uncanny, the paranormal right. things, and which consequently, consequently makes it easier to write them off when you're in your quote-unquote right mind later. But I don't think that's fair to just write everything off as a byproduct of mental illness. I don't think at all. I think mental illness just sometimes open us, opens us up to other types of experiences we normally have the defenses against, and we're just, you know, in our guard's down when we're not in our right mind. Um, well, so, and
2: also, you know, you think about it. That's used a lot when people are drunk and they experience something. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you just hallucinated it. Yeah. Well, that's not really a side effect of alcohol. <laughs> Hallucinations yeah. aren't really what... what uh, but it is interesting how it's excused. But in reality, your wall is down and you're more likely to pick up. You know, your wall Your wall is is too far down in other areas yeah. that, that prevent yeah. you from staying safe and making great choices. It's also <laughs> down uh, in... The you know
1: it's kind of a cultural double standard when too. you think about it. It's on the one hand they say oh you know drunk words sober thoughts, but like drunk experiences are just that. Like what? Come on, you know. But I think yeah. th- there's a there's a long history of uh, t- intoxication playing a role in most ritual magic or you know shamanistic traditions, and I I mm-hmm. don't think it's because like you only have these. You know, experiences because they're because the brain is deranged, I think it just opens your brain up to what's actually to a different level of reality. But I do believe oftentimes they are real, which is not to suggest that you should not seek help for mental illness. You absolutely should, because especially thousand percent. if you're experiencing, especially if your mental illness has a spiritual dimension, especially you need some help to get you through it. Like, you know, if, if, um, James had had like if Joyce had been around to help James through this depression that was brought on by his kind of newfound like being kind of just plunged into this much bigger universe than he was ever led to believe existed you know of course if you're prone to depression that kind of thing is going to give you kind of an emotional vertigo that it's hard to recover from unless you have a guide to help you and if need be medications you know because you do in order to explore this kind of stuff you do need some safeguards because it's just like nature it don't fucking care about you
3: (laughs) it's not all
1: light and angels you know it's shit's gonna like go south real quick it's just this kind of wilderness of experiences that doesn't give a shit whether you survive them or not so you have to go about it in a disciplined way with help just like when you're experiencing mental illness so yeah for those of you and again we said it before on the show if you are having thoughts of suicide please call the suicide prevention hotline give it a shot please
2: talk to somebody anybody Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah, I mean, two people who know what depression is yes. telling you. Yeah, mm-hmm. therapy mm-hmm. saved mm-hmm. my life for sure. Same. Um. Yeah. So, oh. good story, Michael. Yeah,
1: thank you, thank you. I've been wanting to share that for a while, and I finally get around to yeah, being able to dive good. into it. I so. have a
2: story that also includes death because our, our podcast is called Goal Intentions.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess, you know, the trigger warning is in the name.
2: <laughs> it's in the name. But uh, – this one's not quite as dark.
1: Good. All
2: right. Do you want to, do you need a, do you need a break?
1: Yeah, let's take a break and okay. uh, refresh our drinks and then we will come right back.
2: Okay, good. Eight. Hey, it's July and you know what that means?
1: We have more chats coming up.
2: More Discord chats People, for our Patreon. Discord chats for our patrons. Patrons? Patrons. Patrons. That's what it is. Uh, our, our Patrons. Our, our,
1: our Patrons. Our, our Patron- expecto our Patronuses.
2: Patronuses. <laughs> Um <laughs> so Our dates for that are the 14th is for the full Discord, and then the 28th will be the Phantasm tier uh, chats. They're, they've been really, really fun. We have a great time with them. So come yeah, with we questions. Have, we, get and so some fun we get so many ideas. We get so many ideas
1: for the show while talking to you guys. So please if you yeah. have some input or some uh, some notions about what we uh, should do with future episodes, that the chats are definitely when and where to let us yes. know. Yes, and we
2: also have on the Discord, we have different sections for uh, if you have any recommendations about ghost stories, especially on that Phantasm tier, recommendations about titles. But we have tiers from a dollar all the way up to $20. There's a lot of options for you to help support us. This is our Mm. commercial. We don't have any other commercials right now. We're trying to avoid that as long as possible. So uh, (laughs) the Patreon is the way to make that happen. So we would love your support. Um, any support is appreciated but if you are on i believe it's the eight dollar and up tiers you will be a part of the discord there's even a d d game that's going on with listeners which <laughs> it's is really so cool. cool so it's a great community okay. if you guys are interested um, definitely the discord is a way to do that but we appreciate any support that you can give us on that patreon again it's patreon.com yes, yes. slash cool intentions um, or you can just google intentions
1: patron. and if you're on the fence about being a patron just join us for the all skate chat on the 14th and you'll get to see how cool the community is that's for is. discord that's the, for discord yeah the discord chat right yeah join us on the port right that's the 14th
2: yeah but only if you're discord
1: yeah well you have to be on the discord but, right that's what i'm saying yes <laughs> i got confused I'm confusing myself. We love you guys. Join us yeah. on the 14th <laughs> and the 20th. Check
2: out the Patreon. Uh, you can also find it at ghoulintentions.com. Thank you, guys. We love you. Love you, too. All right. My turn. Yay. So my story is the gray lady of Liberty Hall in Frankfurt, Kentucky.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: mm yes. I've been so, to Frankfurt, Kentucky. I don't remember why. Probably a road trip with my mother when I was a child, looking at cemeteries. I haven't.
2: I just told Jack to tell me a city, and that's what I did. And then I was like, (laughs) okay.
3: Fine, I'm in
1: there. Um,
2: So uh, my sources are Wikipedia, an article by Susan L. Moore on Frank Magazine, and hauntedhouses.com. So... Mm -hmm. Mm Liberty Hall is an eighteenth-century historic house museum at two hundred and eighteen Wilkinson Street in Frankfort, Kentucky. So the site itself can be traced back to one thousand, seven hundred and eighty-six. So we are going back a little bit
1: Mm, when General James. What? I said, all right, all right, we're going back. All right, all
2: right, all right yeah. Uh, when J- General James Wilkinson bought m- uh, much of the land that is now Frankfort, Kentucky, he laid out the way that he wanted the town to be, and then he named the roads for, like, his friends and, like, pe- celebrities <laughs> and just, like, things he liked. That was, <laughs> that was what That's he did. like,
1: what every child would do if they became in charge of a city.
2: Yeah, we're gonna right. exactly. We're going to name
1: Popsicle Road. It's
2: popsicles. I love it. Um, and so, like three of the four side, three of the four sides of the house are actually still those names that he named hmm. way back when. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <Nice. laughs> then I was like, "Who's this Wilkinson fella?" Because we're going to get into John Brown, which is a really big name um, yeah, in yeah. Oh, in cool. Kentucky history. But Wilkinson is as well, but for different reasons. So. Uh, I recommend you look it up him if you're into uh, fun history. So he served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, but he was compelled to resign twice. Uh, uh, <laughs> or as twice? they would say in Kentucky, twice. Um, twice. 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 <laughs> After that, he was kind of forced to be a state assemblyman in 1782 by George Washington.
3: I Washington so many, was
2: like, "You I know so many what questions like why? Let, why don't we do this instead?
3: <laughs>
1: I so, so, like they were just trying to find we're just trying to find the right fit for you. That's all,
2: yeah, really. And that's so nice of them. So <laughs> he that's that's why he ended up in Kentucky, where he helped he helped Kentucky achieve its independence from Virginia.
3: Ah, okay. he did
2: that by going to New Orleans, which was Spanish owned at the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and there were. not it was pretty controversial to go there to begin with, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And then he became a highly paid spy for Spain,
3: oh, in
2: return for Kentucky getting a monopoly on trade that went into New Orleans.
3: oh,
2: yeah, it was oh. a big deal and the and the thing is that this whole spy history stuff was not discovered until after he had died
3: <laughs> yeah. And so nobody knew
2: what he was up to with that. And after this, he was the first governor of the Louisiana Territory in 1805. And then he commanded two unsuccessful campaigns during the War of 1812. So he continued to get a position of authority, which is why I think finding out after the fact he was this spy was so devastating for a lot of people. Jesus,
1: uh, we've been giving uh, him office for decades.
2: Yeah. (laughs) President Theodore Roosevelt said of Wilkinson, in all our history, there is no more despicable character.
1: I mean... That was. I mean, it's harsh. That, that was that was then. Harsh words. This is now.
2: <laughs> right. That's okay. So that being said, he also helped break up the Burr conspiracy, which is when Vice uh, President yeah. under Thomas Jefferson, Aaron yeah. Burr, Aaron Burr <laughs> allegedly tried to an, establish an independent country over yeah. here in Texas territory and down south and a little bit west. Like he Burr, wanted, to be, he wanted to be emperor from, of Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Burr, of course, killed Alexander Hamilton Mm -hmm. in a duel. Yep. Yada, yada. I'm just over here, like, where are these fucking stories when we were learning history? I would have been so much more into it. Right. I liked it anyway. Yeah. But but man, stories are so much better than numbers.
1: It's no shit. Dates and numbers, right?
2: So, anyway, by 1796, this particular four acres of land ended up being sold to Senator John Brown. Brown was a Virginian law- lawyer who turned senator, um, and then, as he was a Virginian senator, introduced the petition for Kentucky statehood. Mm. After that, he then became a Kentucky senator, which is why he moved to Frankfurt, the capital of Kentucky, of course. He was senator until 1805, and then he just stuck around and made shit happen. <laughs> He was a founding member of the Frankfurt Water Company and director of the First Bank of Kentucky. He was sheriff of Franklin County for a while. He is a major player in the history of Kentucky, so you can see why this house in particular is a big deal.
1: Nice. He was
2: was kind of a big deal. Uh, He started construction not long after purchasing the land... And by 1800, it was essentially essentially. I can say it.
1: Essentially, I love. I love that. Essentially, I love that, I love that new word. <laughs> it's
2: new, and I like it's it. It's a new
1: line of erotic toys.
2: Sensually.
1: Sensual. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you like that? I
3: like Essentially. it. Essentially.
2: <laughs> um, okay. It was basically complete by 1800, except for windows. Those weren't added till 1804. I just love the idea <laughs> that they're without windows for four
1: years. They're like, oh, I mean, shit, guys, we forgot something. It was the early
2: something. 1800s. And at the time, too, you got to think. Yeah, what uh, Kentucky was as west as it went.
1: Right? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that's true.
2: So... Um, It was also one of the earliest brick homes in Kentucky, and the bricks themselves were fired on site using clay they dug out from the cellar.
1: Oh, that's cool.
2: Yeah, like right there. That's where they made the bricks. The main house is a two-story, five-bay structure that also has a two-story rear L. It's basically a big old L, Mm -hmm. big box in the front, smaller box in the back.
1: I like it. That makes sense. I like it.
2: Um, They don't. I'm sorry, Michael. They don't know the architects specifically,
1: yeah. It's not uncommon for architects to have not like been known. I mean, usually, people built their own houses back then, so right. yeah, was like... um,
2: however, Thomas Jefferson uh, wrote to Brown with some suggestions, <laughs> of course, he for didn't. for the house, which is <laughs> fun um. In addition to the main house, several dependent structures were built on the property, including a kitchen and laundry, smokehouse, a privy, stables, carriage house, and, of course, boo, slave quarters. Boo. No. We don't like that. <sighs> um... John married his wife, Margareta, in seventeen ninety nine, and Liberty Hall became something of a social and cultural center. John and Margareta entertained early American political figures, including President James Monroe, mm-hmm. then General Andrew Jackson, Major Zachary Taylor, and General Marquis de Lafayette.
1: Ah yes. Yeah. Lafitte. Did I say that right? Lafitte. Lafayette. It's Lafitte. Lafayette. Lafitte. Lafitte. Like it's Lafitte. Like Lafitte. Just it's just Lafitte. Y-
2: So we just ignore all the A's and the Y's?
1: It's French. All right. That's
2: true. Did you see that TikTok video that I tagged
1: you in? Which one?
2: So there's this one where this someone is taking and searching in uh, Google Translate Uh how to say hold on and how to say... Time and how to say and and how to say and then they put together a sentence that's like oh you know hold on what about your tent there's a lot of horse flies, your ants or whatever
1: oh no 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 yeah like it's all the same yeah so
2: it is so funny it is so funny and that's what it's Marquis ton, 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 so funny anyway okay. <laughs> uh, Marquis de Lafayette
1: Lafitte, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lafayette It's Lafayette If, you, if you're in
1: America We just say Lafayette I mean if you're from Louisiana yeah. You say Lafayette but it's, Lafayette it's, it's, Or Lafayette In his native tongue It's pronounced Lafitte.
2: Right I ain't native Soufflé. Okay <laughs> the property stayed in the family this is kind of cool too the property itself stayed in the family until 1937 Mm. when it was sold to a preservation society which opened it as a museum so the whole time it was functioning as a home it was in the family in 1971
1: how many how long is that that's so 17 something or other and now it's like so Uh,
2: basically 137 years
1: Jesus like a century and a half god damn that's a long time that's fucking awesome yeah
2: it's really cool. Uh, uh, in 1971, the house was designated as a U.S. National Historic Landmark mm. for its association with Brown and its fun federal-style architecture.
1: Oh, yes, of yes.
2: Um So, Mary Mason Mame, M-A-M-E, that was her nickname, Scott, the great-granddaughter of John and Margaretta Brown, was the last family member to live at Liberty Hall. She was also the first to record... Seeing a ghost in a gray dress in her upstairs back bedroom in the 1880s.
1: I love when there's a record. <laughs>
2: yep, uh, Mame was sleeping in when she awoke to see an apparition—a tall woman veiled in gray. Mame screamed, and her brother John Matthew came in with a shotgun, but the ghost had disappeared. He didn't know it was a, a ghost, so.
1: Now let me ask you That's something, and this my... is this is just a question that makes me very curious. If you ever see a full bodied apparition and I know you have but when you do and it's it's shocking like when you know like there shouldn't be a person there and there's a person there right. now like what kind of scream do you give is it a horror movie scream like oh is it or is it more like is more like huh or uh, I, would, I would probably find myself going oh! <laughs> i would yeah it's i just want to know the various sounds that come out of one's mouth when you when you're confronted with an apparition cuz i i don't think it's like movies at all i think people well, just go well the one for bah, sure bah, that bah. i saw
2: it scared me because I thought it was a person that just like walked out of a bush on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah. So the person scared me and I went, ah! <laughs> just like that. And then, but it immediately turned into laughter because this guy had just scared me that it was just a dude. And then it turns out it was not just a dude because he was not there and my uh, friend who was driving right next to him could not see him. Uh, I... And that. It was fucking trippy.
1: I'm pretty sure I would make a sound like Richard Dreyfuss kicking Bill Murray out of the car in What About Bob? When he's like, That's the
2: that's sound the I would
1: absolutely make when I see an apparition.
2: Or or one of the ones that's like, ah. <laughs> I'd be like,
3: ah, ah. Uh, Okay.
2: Now, that's Mame's scream. Okay, it was loud enough for John Matthew to come in. Um, He didn't see it. But for three nights in a row, apparently the same thing occurred. A family friend later suggested that Mame had seen the ghost of Margaret Varick, a relative that had passed away in the very room Mame had been sleeping in. Mame later referred to the spirit in a documented copy of a drafted letter as Our Beloved Ghost and viewed her as a kindly ghost. So here's what her letter says. I wish I knew if Dr. Mason had ever made the journey to Kentucky, a journey indeed in those days. Uh, the land of Summer Forest in the heart of the bluegrass was sold to pay for Margareta Mason's first t- visit home. <clears throat> His aunt, Miss Margareta Van wick Varick, did, <laughs> dying while here.
3: That's a great the first,
2: Yeah, Margareta Van wick Verick did, <laughs> dying while here, the first death at Liberty Hall, our beloved ghost. Aww.
1: See, that's how you um, treat a ghost. That's You include them right. in the family. You make them part of the gang.
2: Um, and so, uh, since then, the ghost of Margaret Margaret, or Margareta Verrick, it kind of goes back and forth, mm-hmm. has since been nicknamed the Grey Lady, and the sightings of her have been plentiful. There are a couple of stories about why Mrs. Verrick was at Liberty Hall in 1817 to begin with. One is that she was on her way to visit her son in Illinois. Another is that she was on her way to a funeral of a family member. Mm-hmm. And the most commonly told story, and this is the one that I believe comes from the museum too, is that she came to stay with the family and comfort her niece, Margaretta Brown, John Brown's wife, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, after one of their children died from an illness.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: At the age of 65, she had endured a rigorous journey and fell violently ill in one of the bedrooms at Liberty Hall only three days after her arrival. She died before morning came. Her cause of death is not certain, but theories range from a heart attack to acute indigestion to succumbing to the exhaustion of travel. I say why not all three?
1: I mean, the other two sound really vague. Like, she just— Like heart attack, okay, solid. Give me a heart attack, but like, she right. just acute ate, indigestion. Just isn't ate that just a heart much. attack?
2: And succumbing from the to the travel, isn't that just a heart attack?
1: I mean, are we guess. just talking about heart attacks? Like, yeah, uh, like, it's the what do they yeah. used to call it, everlasting faint.
2: <laughs> everlasting faint. Yes, her body is said to have been buried in the Brown family burial plot, either at Liberty Hall or not far from the property. Brown family members were moved from the family plot onto the property. Um, moved from the plot that was on the property Mm -hmm. to the Frankfurt Cemetery in the late 1840s, which is why, that's probably why you went with your mom for that particular cemetery. Yeah, yeah, almost almost certainly. Yeah, uh, and so that cemetery was incorporated in 1844. Hmm. So I imagine a lot of families that had their own plots on their own private property moved bodies to that cemetery at that time. It's a pretty common thing, Um, but I... I'm going to say that the slaves were probably left behind, so let's keep that in mind. Yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah. The,
2: the family was moved, but the slaves probably stayed on the property and are still there. Mm. Um, you know, slavery, racism, all that stuff. Oof interestingly there is no grave marker at the frankfurt cemetery for one margaretta verrick that leads some to conclude that she is unable to find her final resting place that they couldn't find her grave and accidentally left her behind something happened uh which is all kind of standard fare for a haunting like something happened with the gravesite Mm -hmm. so they stick around The ghost of Mrs. Varick is said to have started appearing about, you know, 30 years after she died, not long after the bodies were moved. Hmm. So that kind of matches up story-wise. Seen by family members, visitors, and staff, she is described as a kind, calm entity that is small in size, dressed in a gray house dress. She first appeared to the new bride of Senator Brown's grandson, Benjamin, when she was a guest staying in Mrs. Varick's old bedroom. Uh, the matronly apparition simply walked across the bedroom floor right in front of the startled bride. A visitor, Rebecca Averill, saw the benign Mrs. Varick appear to her, standing motionless next to her fireplace. When Rebecca hid under the covers, like you do, <laughs> Mrs. Varick vanished because those are the rules. It's what you're supposed to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like a ghost looking vascaria, and you're like, nope, I've got a cover. Uh, Yeah. You got me. So
2: you remember her great-grandniece, Mame Scott, who wrote about the ghost, yes? Yes, yes. uh, In the 1920s, when she lived in the mansion still, a story claimed that the ghost of Mrs. Verrick was using her as a medium to try to guide others to her unmarked grave. Oh, So it was popular in the 1920s. Hmm. This story was pretty well known then. So the ghost of Mrs. Varick has been seen on occasion staring out an upstairs window at the people walking below. A college professor who wanted to see if the moonlight could cause unusual reflections in the window panes, um, he spent an entire moon cycle, which is six weeks, so he could watch every night to see what those reflections look like. Spent every night uh, for six weeks—
1: an investigation That's of fucking a haunting. Research, That's right? how you do it.
2: Yes. So he stayed that full six weeks in the mansion and all of his findings were negative. Hmm. But on one of his last nights at Liberty Hall, a gentle touch woke him up. When he opened his eyes, he saw a friendly entity smiling cordially at him.
1: Oh, he's like, Yeah. Well. Glad this happened I on guess my it's not the moonlight. Last night here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "Let me, let me just Why uh, didn't you
2: come the first three nights? Let me just, then I wouldn't have had to do this." All
1: right, let me just n- 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 note this down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> it is believed that her intent toward the living is to be helpful around the mansion. And she has been known to do some chores and be calming uh, a calming supportive influence, much like she was supposed to be to her niece. Aww. her appearances never frighten or upset the living on purpose. they That's they nice. seem very benign. um. On occasion, she has been annoying when she goes about her business in the middle of the night, opening and slamming doors. (laughs) Mrs. Varick has appeared in every single room of the mansion, but her favorite places seem to be her old bedroom and the staircase. Hmm. Both the Brown family and uh, the Colonial Dames, which is the name of the nonprofit which runs the mansion, both of those documented the following occurrences. Overnight, guests sometimes awoke to find themselves being tucked in by a smiling matronly apparition. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, thank you so much
1: in my this mind in bed. my mind she sounds like the woman on tiktok that just offers like day date like nightly affirmations like hey i know you've had a hard day but you got oh, this baby tabitha. Like, i fuck yes i fucking love her isn't
2: it brown tabitha and brown
1: i think you're right yes 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 that's that's who yeah. it is and she's I love her so too. great she's, she's got such a great voice in my she mind really... that's what this is what the great lady sounds like
2: yeah, I love it into, like, good things have happened. I think she had, a, like, a article in Vanity Fair or something like that, and oh, that just makes me really happy for her. I like love that. it when good things happen to good people. Right. Okay, uh, in the morning, blankets would be folded and the mending projects would be finished, uh, which made me think, like, fucking Wendy needs to get her shit together. I have projects, <laughs> and if I could get a little help, <laughs> that would be—
1: I Amazing. mean, that's on you, honey. You've you've got to you've got to establish <laughs> a rapport with this ghost. You got to be I like you got to be like, hey, Wendy. Yeah, we we're really glad to have you, but we're gonna start needing you to pull a little weight around here, just a little bit, mm-hmm. just little, maybe just take just the trash bit. out every now and again. Sure, you know,
2: dust some uh, <laughs> dust the tops of things because I don't want to get on a ladder. Good luck um, if it's the okay. ghost of
1: a child. Good fucking luck. But
2: right, uh, one employee of the Colonial Dames lived in the apartment above the kitchen. One night after she had already gotten into the bathtub, she had forgotten to shut this big, heavy bathroom door. She decided, okay, I'm just going to hurry up and finish my bath instead of getting out to go shut the door and coming back and ruining the calming bath time experience.
3: Uh, (laughs) But while she was
2: washing her hair, the heavy door closed all by its lonesome. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Another woman, as she was sitting in a room thinking of an an old boyfriend who had given her a music box— Um, actually, I think this is the same lady. Uh, so she's thinking, oh, he gave me this music box. Isn't he lovely? I miss him. Um, the unwound closed music box started to play by itself
3: <laughs> oh, I, I like to think
2: <laughs> Auntie Margareta was like girl you got the music box you're good that's all you were getting out of that shit move on
1: <laughs> she's that's like what... count your blessings girl count your blessings girl, yeah,
2: this it is <laughs> she's like Tabitha Ray or Tabitha Brown <laughs> I know that you miss him honey but
1: you got the music box you're gonna be fine I, I love her I love her she's so fucking uh, Great! Right. I need her in my life. Like every night, I, I will scroll through until I find one of hers, and then I can call it a night.
2: <laughs> I do feel better, thank you, Tabitha. Uh, thank you. This uh, helps me. After you have a fire, me. yeah, after a fire at Liberty Hall in 1965 and subsequent restoration, volunteer curator Francis Coleman took photographs of the front stairway, and when they were developed, one photo showed a smudgy-looking figure on the stairs. That photo has often been presented as evidence of the gray lady's presence in the house. I sent you that picture so you could look I at
1: it. did. And it, like, it kind and of remi- it reminds me a little bit of the, the famously faked photograph of the, the lady, mm-hmm. the brown lady of Random Hall, which we have yeah. a story about. But it's it's very similar, but I, I like the – I want it to be real just because I want there to be two photos that are like it and one to be fake and one to be real. I just like the symmetry yeah. of that.
2: Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's cool looking. It is it is for sure pretty cool looking. Yeah. Um, it's subtle. So, whoever who,
1: yeah. if it was faked, you did it right because it's subtle. It's yeah. not like very, Ooh, very I'm a ghost. Yeah. It's more like oh, that's a very suggestive little fa- form, a vaporous form on the stairs. Right. Like it's,
2: yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's just like kind of a few vertical lines and smudgy mm-hmm. looking, and yeah. Yeah. The same curator found three antique early 1800 gold bracelets on the nightstand next to the bed in Mrs. Verrick's old bedroom. The bracelets were not listed on the inventory list, and no one had seen them before. It's thought that maybe Mrs. Varick wanted to give the curator a gift to say thank you for restoring the mansion. Ah.
1: That's it, nice. It makes she's me like, think of. She's like, I've kept this a, a secret for all these years, but here, right?
2: <laughs> it makes me think of the bed and breakfast though that I stayed in, right? In a in a Vicksburg, where she's finding the glasses now as if it, they're she's been approved of. That's kind of how she sees it. I like that idea.
3: Yeah.
2: Records indicate that in 1980, researcher Estelle Pennington was startled by sudden terrible smells and a quill pen moving in fast circles in an inkwell in the front parlor, which is now the dining room.
3: Mm.
2: Also in the 1980s, volunteer curator Eugenia Blackburn, who was living in the Liberty Hall apartment, noticed that the gray lady washed windows and dusted tables.
1: Oh, my God, I love her.
2: I know, she's the best! One day, when she returned home from shopping, the gate opened by itself. Sarah Elliott, the current director for Liberty Hall Historic Site, or at least she was in last year, she says that the Grey Lady is a benevolent ghost with no poltergeist activity. She explains that she has never experienced the Grey Lady or any other ghost on the property. I've been here late at night, but I've never seen or heard anything, she remarks. But there are a lot of people in Frankfurt who have their Grey Lady stories. There are a couple of other spirits to be on the proper said to be on the property as well. In 1805, it said a beautiful Spanish opera star was invited to Frankfurt to perform a concert. The Browns invited this young woman to stay with them during the time of her stay in Frankfurt. During a party, in the, uh, during a party the Browns held in her honor, the young singer went outside on the balmy, uh, in the balmy weather, to take a quick walk in the garden. She was last seen walking down the garden path to the Kentucky River to get a view. She never came back to the party. When she vanished, an extensive search of the area was made, and the river was even dragged, but nobody was found. It was theorized that she was quickly abducted by either Native Americans or despicable characters who were attracted by the lights and the noise of the party. She unfortunately (laughs) forgot about the dangers of living so close to the Kentucky wilderness. Maybe it was the Kentucky Dogmen. Which is a whole other thing. Oh yeah. And I, love, oh, I just I, wanted to tie that in.
1: I love it. We have a little <laughs> we have a little cross fandom there going on. We, I know, right? <laughs> do do your research, folks. Oh my god.
2: Um <laughs> Kentucky Dogman's a whole other thing. <laughs> Throughout the years, a dark haired female apparition and I think Well, we'll get there. Throughout the years, a dark-haired female apparition with her mouth frozen open in a soundless cry of terror has been seen running frantically through the gardens, usually on hot, humid nights. Creepy. There's also uh, people will hear singing uh, Mm. from disembodied singing on the site itself, not necessarily in the house, but outside in the garden surrounding. I hope,
1: I hope it's good singing because you don't really ever hear, I mean, but I kind of want it to be bad singing too, just for the story. Right. Because I'm like, I want right. the ghost to be like, my heart's from the chandelier. You know, I just want, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, want right? it, like it's be... the, s- the sound of me in the shower singing and it's like, that's my ghost. Oh, how embarrassing would that be?
2: Yeah, right? That'd be a good time, actually. I enjoy it. (laughs) An apparition of a soldier from the War of 1812 dressed in a British uniform has been seen peeking in the ground floor windows to see into the hall's living room.
1: Oh, this place is a vortex.
3: Yeah. Straight up. Well,
2: the opera singer and soldier stories don't originate from the Brown family sources, according to director Sarah Elliott, though. She Hmm. is not sure where those other stories came from.
1: So it uh, could be stories from could, other areas and everyone just goes, uh, just has that, there's that one famous haunted spot. So all the ghosts that have ever happened in that city right. are attached to that place. Just or in, in popular if people
2: see a ghost, sometimes they create a story to yep. go along with what they yep. saw. Yep. So that happens a lot too. Um, what's fascinating about this property though, is that there are so many letters and diaries left behind, it makes their lives seem far more like ours. They know, for oh, example, tough. that John's brother took his own life, mm. that Orlando's daughter, uh, John and Margareta's granddaughter, might have had a mental disability, mm. and even that Margareta gave a child rearing book to her son, huh. not her daughter in law, as a gift. Huh. Huh. Which, you know.
1: <laughs> what to expect when your wife is expecting.
2: <laughs> exactly. Which <laughs> is kind of shocking considering the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. really. I mean, because men Uh, were just like, you you women just go off. Like, you you get big for a few months, and then you uh, reappear with a child. It just happens, right? That's how it works.
2: Yeah, and it was a child rearing, so this is how you rear your child specifically. So I think that says kind of a lot about her, which I like. Uh, Since the family lived there so long, they have loads of documents, and the majority of the furniture and household goods are original to the house. Oh,
3: that's so cool.
2: So cool. So with that in mind... I figured it'd be really simple to find the records about Mrs. Varick, because I want to, you know, double check and make sure these things are always real. But every time I looked up a Mrs. Varick or Margaret Varick or Margaretic Varick, I was redirected to the story of the Grey Lady. Mm. And naturally, I got suspicious and a little sad. I was like, is this bullshit? No. So I did some digging.
3: Uh.
2: First... John Brown is a big fucking deal. So I went to a <laughs> genealogy wedi- uh, wedding. I went to a gene- <laughs> genealogy website. I think genie.com is where I went mm. uh, to look up the family. I saw pretty quickly that his grandson was named Benjamin. So the whole story about Benjamin's bride seeing the spirit, okay, that checks out okay. name wise. Right. Um, I don't know if that, yeah, that would have been after the 30 years, I think. Mm. Yeah, after the thirty years, because then I'm in my mind, I'm like, she wasn't seen until thirty years after she died, so that would have been his grandson. Okay, yeah, that does make that adds up. Okay, <laughs> so, um, but what about Mrs. Barrick, right? Yeah. So first, I assumed that the aunt, and this was just me instantly being like, well, the aunt is going to be on the mom's side. Mm. Mm. Right. I doubt the you aunt from the father's side would have come. It's usually the maternal side that yeah, is the one that's
1: usually but generally not,
2: supportive. Not that was always. just the direction I headed in instinctively. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I don't have any aunts that were my mom didn't have any sisters mm. and I don't have any sisters. So this is just me assuming what I would want. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so um It just felt right that it was the mother's sister. Keep in mind, there are a lot of names that are going to be repeated, so things get a little hectic. Right. Okay. But uh, before all that, let's, I thought, let's check and see if the Browns even lost a child in 1817. That would be in the records. And they did not. They did not lose a child in 1817, which bummed me out because I really want her to be real. Uh, John and Margareta had five children total and two boys survived. Mason, the eldest. Mason was Margareta's maiden name, which I think is cool. So you heard other versions of Mason. Mm -hmm. So it has stayed in the family as a family name. Okay, It was Margareta's maiden name, which I love. I love that. Yeah. And then another son, Orlando. Those are the two that survived. Mason okay. like became a judge. They divided up the property and built another house, and that's where Orlando lived. And the, that both of those houses are available for tours. Um, mm. So Margaretta and John were married in early 1799, and Mason was born in late 1799. Oh so
3: my! So they were pretty on they got, it. They were they ready, got, they ready for the bizarre. family,
2: <laughs> which was probably because Margaretta was already 27 years old ah, when they got married.
1: Okay. Yeah, so she's Which like is I got to get this out now. real old
2: for 1799.
1: <laughs> like she's practically You know what I mean? She's practically so, ancient.
2: Yeah, right? It was. And uh, and then John moved Margareta from Virginia to Frankfurt as well. So, I like to get into the mindset of this woman who probably thought she was going to be a spinster. At this point, she's 27. Mm. She should have been married. At that point, 18, her mom had her when she was 20. Like, Mm. it's... Yeah, At 27, it was thinking, generally... Yeah.
1: I mean, hell, there yeah. 27-year-olds now that feel like they'll never get married because they're 27, right. and it's like, Honey. because they're 27. Right.
2: Uh, <laughs> we are in our 40s, and we're like, eh, we'll get there. We'll get there. will
1: <laughs> <right. Yeah. laughs> be fun. I'm engaged. What more do you want? <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, you know, the b- bonus of corona, people stop asking when you're going to get married, except for <laughs> yeah. my mother. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, so you think about that, like she thought she was probably, she probably thought she was going to be a spinster. Mm, and mm. then she gets married and she has, a, I, I don't know when she moved. The house was finished in 1800. First son was born in 1799. So she has her first son. They move to the house. She has another son, like in the span of just a few years. Yeah. So her life really changed. And I I bet it was just a really cool uh, kind of hopeful experience for her. Exciting, at the very least. uh, So Orlando came along in 1801, and then they had Alfred, who died at 11 months in 1804. They immediately had another baby, who was also a son, that they also named Alfred. Hmm. So there's the reuse of the family name. I'm assuming it's a family name.
1: So there's there's a
2: lot of reusing names, because kids died a lot back then, right? It's
1: true, true.
2: But sadly... The second Alfred died in 1805. So 1804, first Alfred dies, 1805, second Alfred dies. Uh It's pretty tragic and hard. Um, And then in 1807, they had their only girl, Euphemia. Margareta was around 35 at the Mm. time she was born. So you can imagine she must have been delighted to not only have a girl, but to have that girl survive infancy, right? Yeah, no kidding. Until Euphemia passed away Uh when she was seven. And that was in 1814, not 1817.
1: Oh.
2: So for me, date-wise, that's close enough.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's you easy know? to get the dates mixed up. I mean, it, you're, especially when they're that close together. But Yeah, and but the, yeah, that but sounds the story right. matches up okay. with the
2: child dying. Um, oh. Now, they did say that the what i read was that the child died of an illness that's not the case and this is if you have been putting yourself in Margaretta's shoes just get ready it's going to get real sad for a second oh uh euphemia died from an overdose of calomel (gasps) so calomel is a mercury chloride mineral that was a popular medicine used during the victorian period and was widely used as a treatment for a variety of ailments during the american civil war
3: Mm. so it was
2: still being used There were a couple of ways to take it. One was, like, in a gel powder form that your doctor would give you. There were no dosing regulations or anything like that, though. Yeah. So that was usually administered by the doctor himself. Mm. And then unless, yeah. And then um, the other way was they would put it in licorice or candies.
3: Um... And it was
2: taken orally. So I imagine and that was for kids. Her little Euphemia yeah. thought she was eating candy oh, oh. and ate this medicine that killed her.
3: Oh.
2: And I can see how devastating this horrible accident must have been oh, for Margareta. Her baby girl, her only daughter, her last child dies of a horrible accident that she probably oh. blamed herself for, right? Yeah. So it absolutely makes sense that a, so another family member would travel to come help her with that yes. loss, right? Right. You know, it's nowadays, you know, there's, we have so much, you know, medicine and stuff like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not as common if someone loses a baby, it's like, oh, of course, it totally makes sense that somebody would come. But back then, babies were lost pretty regularly yeah. and so uh it wasn't that out of the norm so for this i wanted to see if there was something so that was out of the norm that would m- have someone travel such a distance to go see her this answers that for me yeah absolutely yeah this is something that would 100%. be devastating devastating yes. to the family
3: oh,
1: so <laughs> okay. god okay you can imagine having this person come and then the person dies after three days of being there i Jesus know Christ. it's so sad
2: so, okay, so first, then I was like, well, what about her mother? Why wouldn't her mother come? Because that's who I would want, right? Mama.
1: Well, if she was already 35, well, her mother was probably di- dead Her then. mother
2: died when she was 31.
1: Yeah, okay. There when the is. mother
2: was 31.
1: Yeah. So oh, she was
2: already dead. Uh, so um, so then I was like, okay, uh, Catherine died. That's the mother's Catherine,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Catherine Mason. She died in 1784. Uh, when she was only thirty-one, so I'm not sure how she died, but you know, hmm. she she passed away in in uh, when she was thirty-one. I looked her up on the genealogy site, and she did have a sister named Margaret, ah, and another sister named Margaretta, oh, and two sisters named Helena. Okay. So that's confusing, <laughs> right? Yeah, I was I mean, like, it's like looking at all these dates <laughs> and like, what the hell?
1: It's like so, Newhart. Here, this, uh, this is my brother Daryl. my other brother Daryl.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I have two brothers. One's named Jean Luc and one's named John. So I live in that space. But <laughs> um, my assumption is that this is a situation much like uh, Margaretta's sons, Alfred and Alfred, mm-hmm. where it is a family name um, Margaret, Margaretta, and then Catherine's daughter's named Margareta. Helena Helena is in there a lot as well, hmm. t- you know, too. So um, my assumption is those first daughters died.
1: Hmm. And hmm.
2: then they reused the names to keep yeah. the family name going, right?
1: It was also common, so, you know, to use a similar name in honor of some other family member, ancestor, whatever. And so that would be their name on record, but they would be known by the family by some nickname, you know.
2: Right, um, right.
1: That was pretty um, common, too.
2: Yeah, so... Specifically, Helena Number One was born in 1741. Helena Number Two was born in 1751. Mar and the same thing happened with Margaret. Margaret was born in 1744. Margareta was born in 1754. So each of those are ten years apart, based on the mm. genealogy side. Okay.
1: So this is looking. I'm liking these odds.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's also records of Helena Two. Getting married, so her last name is different in the records because she got married and changed her name. Mm. There aren't name changes for the other girls, including a girl that they had Jean Marie or something like that Mm. afterwards. Um, so I'm not sure, but Margaretta was only three years younger than Catherine, so they probably were close,
1: yeah, right, yeah. Just
2: in a, I mean, they were close, you know, sisters. The story says Margareta was 65 at the time she came, but she actually would have been 70 in 1814.
1: Well, old at the time she didn't for sure. look, She didn't look a day over 65.
2: Right. Um old at the time, but still traveling age.
1: I mean, you if know. you were if you were hardy enough and, and if yeah. and if and if the trip was for an emergency, like I need to yes. go and comfort my niece yeah. who's just had probably one of the greatest losses of our life. Like you're going to make right. that journey knowing full well that it's probably going to be your last journey, but that's I mean, everyone like it was a risk to travel no matter what age you were mm-hmm. back then because of all the perils involved. So, yep. but I mean, by the time think about, it, by the time you're a sturdy old gal, you're going to be like, yeah, what the fuck, let's do it. Like let's what if, it. I've yeah, seen a lot. Exactly. I've seen some things. Travel don't scare me no more. So, yeah, I could totally right. yeah.
2: Yeah, and and this is why i think it's Margareta, the younger one they've used Margareta, but they also use margaret a lot mm-hmm. uh back and forth mm-hmm. in different stories but i think it was Margareta specifically because margaret would have been 80 and i think that's too old i don't think that that would, would have, have been a travel. very
1: that would have been a very uncommon age but yes, that yeah. said if she was so constituted, she might have been like, "I'm coming whether you want me to or not." <laughs> right. Right. I had a, my grandmother was like that. She'd have been like, if she'd lived to yeah. be in her 80s, she'd have been like, "You can't keep me off that fucking coach." Right.
2: Yeah, that's so true. It that's just, true. It but just I feel like it just seems Margareta is the right fit here. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think
1: you're to something.
2: And the family records record her as Margaretta Van Wick, which was her uh Catherine's maiden name was Van Wick mm. so Margareta Van Wick is the right name Okay. and then uh Baric comes from that letter I don't know where Varick comes from it is not in the genealogy sites uh How's it, it is spelled? in that letter that mame sent and i think that they mistranslated it at first uh. because in the cuz they she wrote it and then they Copied it and typed it out, and so it was misspelled and someone crossed it out and wrote Varick in there. So it seems like the the um, the letter that the the museum has, they traced it back to a family name. Okay. So it seems like Varick is probably accurate, but Margareta Van Wyck was a real person, was her aunt, and was the right age to fit the story. So the ghost so, is real.
1: So she's real. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> yes, real.
0: Yeah. I love yes. an
1: actually that becomes an actually actually.
2: I know. So either way, you know, whatever it is, it seems believable that Margareta could have come to help her niece and namesake, keep in mind. Right. After the tragic and unexpected loss of her only daughter. Yes. There's no date, death, uh, death date listed that I could find for Margareta. Mm. But if Eugenia died in 1814, it's likely that's when Margareta died as well.
3: Mm. Mm.
2: All of this is to say, <laughs> this is where the title comes into play. Oral history is fucking history. Dates and all the details may not be super accurate, but the story told is real. Just because it doesn't fit all the specific dates doesn't mean it never happened. Same thing, I couldn't find anything about the Spanish opera singer but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. But well, that's, that's the what oral people don't history, always right? realize
1: is that oral history is by far the vast majority of history. Like I mean yep. there's only got a certain number of dedicated professionals that are concerned with like documenting things and compiling them. And even that fades over time as as the game of telephone gets played among historians. I mean they they're no, yep. you know, their their information corrodes and is subject to change over time in light of new information too, but oral history is for the most part like I mean, my mother, as a genealogist, will tell you, like, you know, families don't make it into the history books. So the only history is oral, passed down. And it's amazing to me growing up knowing who my great-great-great-great-grandparents were by name because my mother had done research on them and had a little book compiled for the family. But most people don't even know who their grandparents were, let alone their great-grandparents, like what their names were, where they lived. Like most people don't because we've slowly slipped away from that oral tradition, uh, which I think is – sad but you know it It is
2: um but i think you know what This is what makes stories more interesting, though, mm. is that they are personal. Yes. I lean away from that story of the opera singer being true because I feel like if that had happened, it would be in their notes. So the museum would have would be in their diaries. It would be in all the paperwork that they had. And it didn't. It doesn't show up according to the curator. So it seems mm. like it's not likely that that's and, actually and, what happened there. That doesn't mean it didn't happen somewhere else.
1: Right. And opera singers are but, were the fucking rock stars of their day. They, they were, they were yeah. even more than rock stars. They were like a combination of guru, rock star, movie star, all rolled up into one. And if one, something like that happened to a rock, to, yeah. uh, to that, like, we'd fucking know. Um, yes, I absolutely. I mean, because everyone so cared. Too. The cult of celebrity yeah. around opera singers was, ins- it. honestly, our cult of celebrity around what we have now pales in comparison yeah. to the attention opera singers got back in the day.
2: Yeah, so... The only thing that seems to be incorrect in Mame's letter is that Aunt Margareta's death was the first one at Liberty Hall. By the time Margareta got there, two baby boys and little Eugenia had already died, most likely in the house. It's not like they were going to go to the children's hospital or labor and delivery, right?
3: Right. The doctor
2: would have come to the house. Exactly. And uh, so, um, let's see, what was I going to say? Oh, (laughs) Yeah. Just because it doesn't fit specific dates doesn't mean it never happened. And mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that this is such a great example for everyone, really, that when you we get so much into the, you know, finding out if something is true and finding out if there's any history to back something up, it doesn't take a lot to back up oral history, just a little bit of like, okay, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. So when someone's like, oh, well, that didn't happen on the exact same date, so I don't believe it. It's, you know, there there needs to be some forgiveness for oral history, but most of the time those stories are pretty accurate. And yeah. so uh well, if not, they certainly you know, if you take I'm them saying. seriously, to, they can
1: certainly lead you to the truth.
2: Yes, yeah. And so you have, you know, before she died, before Margaretta died, you have three two babies and a little girl that died on the on the property. Yeah. Not to mention all of the slaves that probably died on that property as well. Mm. So who knows? wall's haunting i feel like you know auntie margaretto must have been real busy for a 70 year old woman to be doing all that stuff it makes me wonder if maybe she has some help
1: maybe maybe right
2: uh i'm just saying i'm just saying but um frankfurt and (laughs) has tours She's very The gray lady is extremely popular in Frankfurt. (laughs) She's very well known. And so uh, they have tours, costume contests, and events based on the gray lady. Hopefully, this Halloween, they'll be just as active
3: as
1: Auntie Margareta.
3: Oh, I love it.
1: (laughs) That was a journey. I love it too. Thank you for taking us on that journey, Jamie. I loved (laughs) it. I was so afraid it wasn't going to be true. And then it was true. It was just so many twists and turns. (sighs) <sighs> yeah,
2: you should have heard me. Like, I would find something and be like, ah! And Jack would be like, what? And I was like, well, it turns out that there are two sisters named Margaret, and I don't know which one it is.
1: <laughs> so and you had to like, do, like, deductive work to be like, it must be this one. That's oh, so yeah, great. Oh,
2: had- yeah, dates and like it. numbers and ages like oh how old god. was such and such when this person died and these babies were born and all maybe, of to try to figure maybe out.
1: Maybe someone with the Frankfurt Historical Society will hear this podcast and be like, oh my god she's on to something and like credit like <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? Oh my god, yeah. you could have a plaque in your name. And then a thousand the years from now they'll think you're the grey lady. That's how it'll... <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Oh my well, I, You
2: know what's funny too is it shows like the repetition of a lot of ghost story websites. You know, I read this story on several sites beyond the ones that I've noted. Mm -hmm. But um, there were several, and and they're very similar stories that are told uh, with some differences, of course. But um, it was just, it was, the same story gets told a lot. There's a lot of copying and pasting out there in internet land. And so I kept thinking, why am I the only one who's ever looked into it like this? And that's not to say that the web, or that the, uh, the museum hasn't. You know, if you go to the museum, they may have done that, but I can't go to the museum and search through their records or anything like that. So right. this was me doing my best with my, with so what I good.
1: have. So good, I yeah. wanna, yeah. Yeah, we should write them and see if you're if you're on, if, if their records correspond, or if, or maybe it lights a fire under them and they go, you know, we haven't thought of that before. Right. Yeah, I oh, love oh, doing the digging on nice. the history. It's so much good, good for you. Good job, good, job. good nice. job, Jamie.
2: Thank you, it's really fun.
1: That was excellent i uh, trying to plug in my computer. see your, your camera's drifting there now, and it's super weird.
2: It's because I pulled the cord <laughs> it's and like, it turned the
3: camera.
2: Yeah, I just was trying to add. I got so excited about this one; it was really fun. It was really, really fun to find. So, yay, oral history!
1: Hell yeah! History. So
2: awesome. So yeah. Well, Well, thanks. This was really fun. Yeah.
1: Thank you guys for listening. And, uh, you know, as always, submit your stories. Go to ghoulintentions.com. And there's the submission field. It couldn't be easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank
2: you to our Patreons, per usual. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh, And
2: and remember, or wait, stay safe. Stay sane. And remember,
1: it's it's okay okay to sleep with with the the lights
2: lights on. on.